I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Light Through, a very special episode number 284, my interview with Joe McKinnon about the uncanny similarity of working for Apple and working for Lumon. Well, if you're a fan of Severance, you all know what working for Lumon is all about. But let's get right to it. Here's this interview we just did yesterday. The Light on Light Through podcast. Hey, I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to this special edition of Light on Light Through. And it's very special because those of you who've been listening to the podcast or have been watching videos, which is basically just me talking and you have an image of what I'm talking about, know that one of my great new discoveries in the past few months has been a series called Severance on Apple TV+. And I was very happy to discover it because I'm a notorious cheapskate, as I always say. And I went to Apple TV to watch the Foundation series. So for the same money, if I can watch and enjoy another series, I think that's really great. Now, apropos of the Foundation series, uh, you, my loyal listeners and viewers, may recall that a few months ago, uh, we had a discussion, we being me, uh, Joel McKinnon, who you're seeing right there, and Cora Boulette, um, who lives in Germany. And all three of us are avid fans of the Foundation series. So we spent about an hour talking about that first season. And if you're interested in that, there'll be a link to that in the show notes to this podcast and also on the YouTube page. Anyway. Joe probably was aware of the series because I've been posting my head off about it every time I review anything I do that. But I noticed that Joel just the other day posted on Twitter that uh, he, he really uh, enjoyed. That's okay. This I, I love stuff like this. It, it makes it seem more alive and authentic. Um, uh, I, it hasn't gone <laughs> off, but I want to make sure it doesn't. Okay. It's all right if it does. Hold on a second. Mr. Spielberg, yes, uh, I would certainly be interested in you turning my novel into a movie. Forget about this interview. Anyway, um, so just a few days ago, I, uh, I saw that Joel uh, had seen and really loved Severance. And I sent him a note saying, hey, great, I'm glad you liked it. And Joel then responded, you know, it reminded me <laughs> in some ways of the years I spent working at Apple. And uh, I already knew that Joel was like an interesting person. He not only uh, writes and does great podcasts, in particular the Selden Crisis podcast, in which he provides really excellent renditions of parts of the original Foundation series and also talks about it. By the original, I mean what Asimov wrote. But it turns out he's also a musician. He sent me uh, a link to uh, at least one video that he did uh, in his group in the 1990s. That's something I can certainly relate to, especially not only being a musician, but a musician that virtually no one other than the members of your own family know about. So, you know, all that really resonated with me. But I, as soon as I saw this post uh, about Joel having worked at Apple and that having had some resonance rhyming with him when he was seeing Severance, I said to Joel, hey, we should do a little uh, episode of Light on Light Through and talk about this. So that's what we're doing here. But... Um, why don't we begin, Joel, by telling me why you love the series so much, then I'll tell everyone why I love the series, and then we can talk more about Apple and other things. Well, I just thought they did everything right. Uh, it, like starting with uh, the casting was brilliant. I, I thought everybody, and they were all unknown to me except for uh, uh, what's Christopher Walken. 
right? The Christopher Walken character. But uh, everybody else was just perfect for the role. Um, it evoked this this uh, kind of dark, moody uh, feeling, but at the same time was just had moments of hilarity that it was kind of like uh, The Office and Black Mirror, you know, combined together and in this like kind of disturbing but but hilarious at the same time kind of feeling and the uh, the soundtrack was brilliant i just love that very minimalist soundtrack and the whole uh, set staging of it was minimalist but like really uh and the premise you know the the premise was so good because it just it brings out so many interesting possibilities uh, the uh, this idea of separating your inner uh, work life from your outer life completely. Uh, I, I agree completely. It's a brilliant idea. And, uh, you know, the, the details were really astonishing, including the opening credits, which are an important part of any television series or movie. In fact, maybe even more important than a television series because you see them every week if it's a sequential kind of series. And uh, at first, when I first saw those opening credits, I was sort of stunned. I didn't know what to make of them. Yeah. And the, what they did during the season is little by little, they rolled out various explanations for the various parts of the opening credit. Near the end, I guess it may be the next to last episode, we finally found out what that black gook was all yeah. about, right? That's, that's Irving. Uh, who was played by John Turturro is some kind of painter or I don't know, maybe an astronaut who became a painter, who, who knows. Uh, but that, they obviously took advantage of that. And the other thing that I really liked about the series is, as you know, I'm really a sucker for anything that has to do with time travel and alternate history and alternate realities are sort of closely related to time travel. And so it struck me as I began to understand what was going on in the series, that this was almost something of an alternate reality because Lumen is not something that is created in our future. They make a point in Severance of showing how Lumen goes back to the 19th century. And I guess this is before they had the technology to do the Severance, but there was some kind of company almost like a Kellogg cereal company in a way. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and yet somewhere along the line, they developed this incredible uh, technology. We still have no idea what they actually do there. That's, that's really the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. That... There's so much to, to still discover in subsequent seasons. They, they, they didn't resolve everything by any means. Absolutely. I mean, Dylan seems to be like the most aware of of all the main uh characters uh he was also the most hostile uh, and, and of course he's the one at the end who almost christ-like apropos easter <laughs> holding up those uh levers which enabled the uh the jump of the innies uh into their outy uh existence but right no one knows anything no one at least that we've seen and that's an important point because that includes harmony as well. I mean, she's an interesting character because on the one hand, she knows how to mete out punishment to those below her. But on the other hand, she herself is very much under the thumb of the board. And as a matter of fact, they fire her at some point and she's still loyal to them as we find out in, in the last episode. By the way, I'm like you. I didn't know most of the actors either. Uh, I, I did know, obviously, uh, Christopher Walken, who plays Bert. I did know uh, John Irving, who plays uh, John Tutoro. <laughs> Who's John Irving? I don't know. See, I'm going crazy. I can't he tell. He looked familiar to me. I don't know what I've seen him in, but he's he yeah. familiar. Yeah, he, and, and then, of course, um, uh, is it Patricia Arquette who plays Harmony or her sister? Oh, yeah. I knew yeah. Patricia Arquette, but yeah. the interesting thing there is the last thing I saw her in was um, After Hours, I think. That's a great movie. Like, it was like 40 years ago or something. Yeah. It was quite a while. Uh, it was really cool. Movie. She was also, I think, in True Love, which um, was 
I think that uh, that was a movie that um, it was a, a pretty famous director wrote the movie, but didn't direct it. I, I can't remember his name. I'm sure the, our viewers and listeners will know it, but she was great in that as, as well. Um, but let's uh, get to Apple because I, let me just say, I used to teach at a university called Fairleigh Dickinson University. And there was something in the halls of Fairleigh Dickinson University. It's a university out in Teaneck, New Jersey, that was reminiscent of those halls in, uh, in Severance. So it probably is a pretty standard thing, but I assume for you it was more than the halls. It was the way that Apple related to its employees. The halls is the first thing that hit me because uh, I remember like the campus I was on and what probably wasn't typical of Apple in general, but the campus I worked at, I started as a contractor, uh, had a series of buildings, different buildings that all had certain characteristics. They were mostly white, you know, white walls, uh, you know, with posters of Apple products around and things like that. But what was what was kind of interesting is every building had this problem for for orienting yourself in it that it would have like a an entry on all four sides and wherever you went in it all looked kind of the same looking forward looking to the sides and it was really easy to forget what not get ninety degrees off of where you meant to be and. Like you'd often have to like look at the map of the building, even though they were very fairly small buildings, just because they seemed designed to disorient you, like kind of like uh, the problems they had in the in the show. <laughs> but uh, that was the first thing that hit me. But then it was kind of the the cult like atmosphere of the thing as it developed, and you know Apple's very cult like with the Steve Jobs veneration and everything, uh, and. Well, there was also the fact that I had a, a boss who was kind of Melchick like he, he tended to uh, he had this kind of false cheeriness that would like try. He tried to like bribe everybody with cheerful like pizza lunches and stuff that you always felt like or at least I always felt like were kind of like uh, mandatory that I didn't really want to be at. But I, you kind of have to to be in his good graces. And like I, I tried for the longest time to stay in his good graces and eventually just, you know, it didn't work because I was, it was kind of like an implant that wasn't hold wasn't working very well for me. I was rejecting it. <laughs> and eventually that got me in some significant trouble there because, you know, there, there was one, only one, one way to success, which was being on good in, in your boss's good graces. There really wasn't any other way. I, I love it. So uh, do you think the people who put together Severance, whether either in the writing or the staging, used experience that they, you know, if we went into that uh, situation, did a little research, we find that someone there was in Apple at some point? I, I was tempted to do that research because I, I <laughs> you know, it's probably not a lot of the things I noticed aren't only Apple, unique to Apple. There's probably any corporate, you know, large corporation. A lot of that is just like standard stuff that's in a corporation and, you know, ways of like trying to seduce your workforce into staying as long as possible. And um, it, uh, oh, the other thing that really was resonant was the badges because, you know, there's this, the switching badges to get into the, uh, when you go in, you're like, and, a, a different person when you walk in with that badge and uh, you know apple was all about the badge and it was like so so important because of security you know apple has very tight security um you'd have this apple badge that had a big apple on it and it became part of you and you absolutely had to have that badge all the time on you you couldn't walk through any doorway without it uh and if you forgot your badge if you left your badge at home um you had to do what we called the walk of shame, which was to walk like way across campus to this one building, to this one desk, to one person who you who would give you this like stern look and you know grudgingly give you your temporary badge for the day and like with strict orders to return it at the end of the day. 
and you know don't ever do this again and uh, i only did it a half a dozen times in my time there but uh, it was, uh, and then when when I was finally done after five years, when I gave up my badge, I almost felt like losing a part of my body. It was just like a, a you know, an amputation of, of something. You know, it's, it's, it's become such a part of you. So is that voluntary? If you don't mind my asking, you couldn't take it anymore, or you had a, you found a better job, or you just uh, didn't want to work? No, it, it, I don't want to get into the details. Yeah. It wasn't completely voluntary. It okay. was um, I. I I stayed long enough to get my uh, my stock uh, uh, vested, and uh, that's the one thing I I have to give to Apple. They really helped me with my retirement you know, funds uh, because I got enough stock to be comfortable, and without it, I wouldn't be. So I'm I can't regret that, but I I wouldn't urge anybody to go. I don't think it's worth it to work there. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to say I love Apple products. Absolutely, right. I'm using one right now. Me too. Uh, I'm, yeah, they they make the greatest products, and I respect them immensely for that. Uh, but uh, it's hell to work there. At least it was for me, and I think for a lot of people it would be. Well, it's an interesting point because you know, I think for most creative people, which you and I are, it's hell to work at any place. So, you know, um, one of the reasons I became a professor, and this is really true, you know, I do enjoy teaching, but I, I don't think I could ever work in a nine to five place. I, I would very quickly go crazy and I, I would leave, but I still needed money. So one of the sweet things about teaching is you go in, you teach your course, every once in a while you have to go in for a god-awful boring departmental meeting and i hope the former chairs of my department don't get offended but i think it you, you know it, it's been uh, said i think stephen uh, j gould the harvard biologist said at some point that um the most enervating thing in his life was sitting in a departmental meeting and uh, some people misunderstood that because enervating sounds like it could be exciting, but actually it's a very fancy highfalutin word that means just the opposite. It drains you of energy. Mm. So, um, yeah, and um, yeah, I always quote that. So, I mean, the teaching itself, you know, I mean, I guess there are some people who don't like teaching, but to me, obviously I like talking. It's an enjoyable thing to teach. Uh, but but even the tiniest bit of corporate aspect of being a professor bothers me. So I, I understand completely, you know, how, how you felt about Apple. And I think severance can be seen as a brilliant satire of that. You know, this this idea of loyalty to the company that you work for, uh, loyalty in any case is a problem, you know, you should make decisions about what you want to be loyal to on an individual basis. The idea that you have to be loyal to something like a company uh, is a somewhat insane thing, which which the series captures very well. Uh, there is uh, there there are a couple of interesting slogans I remember. They, I don't know if they were official, but it was things like uh, uh, you can't be just competent you have to be extraordinary uh, you don't uh you don't ride the bus you drive the bus everybody drives the bus so it's like these ways of like pumping you up uh to and and this feeling of like once you walk in the door with that apple badge you're with all these other like uh, blessed people who get to walk in that door with that apple badge and it doesn't matter how punishingly you know uh, wretched the job might be sometimes you're at apple and and it's so it's worth it just for that you know and, and you get to go to the the keynotes and and uh, you know you get to hang out with all your other wonderful apple people and uh it, yeah it, it it's like for a while i bought it and then after a while i was like you know this is ridiculous <laughs> i think it for anybody who's creative like that you kind of have to be like almost bludgeoned into staying in a, in the same role for eight hours a day um and there's just no way to do it without it feeling like a brutal experience you know for if you're yeah 
Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things that Severance didn't show was any kind of cafeteria. I mean, they did have, you know, obviously the employees eating that became a big deal, especially in the final episodes and, you know, nice pieces of cake and whatnot. Uh, but um, most companies I have company cafeterias. The reason why I mentioned this is I was never, I've never been inside an Apple uh, building or operation, but I was once invited to lunch uh, at Google headquarters in New York City. And uh, it wasn't anything like severance. And as a matter of fact, what I remember very clearly about that is the cafeteria food was absolutely delicious. I mean, you couldn't get better food in the best New York restaurant. And this was not just for me as a visitor, this was for the employees. So how did Apple treat you as far as that? I mean, that at least got tremendous. you. Yeah, it was tremendous. great. We had, we had uh, like top, top chefs and all the Apple cafes. <laughs> they were, they were just great. Uh, yeah. And the food is like, it wasn't, super cheap but it was like it was like reasonably priced for excellent food you know you much cheaper than you would spend going out on the street and getting the equivalent you know kind of food so no complaints about that that that's really brilliant let me ask you this um do you think anyone at apple tv which after all is part of apple right apple tv plus did that have any connection to why they decided to go with severance? Now, I have to admit, I haven't researched this, so I don't know whether Apple actually started the project. You know, it happens in all kinds of ways, or the producers came, you know, Ben Stiller called up someone at Apple TV Plus and said, hey, I have a project. They shopped it around. They, they got a better deal from Apple than from Paramount Plus or HBO Max. So I have no idea how any of that happened. But given what you're saying about Apple, uh, do you think there's any chance that Apple knew what it was doing and it was almost hoping... I don't know because I mean the, the company Lumen is not shown in a flattering light. That's for sure. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I think I've I always got the feeling that Apple did have kind of a sense of humor about themselves. You know, the, didn't or did? Did did okay. Like, and, like in the the, the big uh, product launches and keynotes, there's kind of like this sense of it's almost self-parody in a sense, in a way. You know, they they have this their their. Uh, uh, th their vibe is so well known and they almost mock it themselves, you know, make fun of the themselves. Uh, so I kind of feel like they might've seen themselves in it a little bit, uh, but uh, they probably feel it, felt like, uh, yeah, just, that's a superficial comparison. But I saw a little bit more deeply. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, getting back to what you experienced there as someone who's working at Apple, Obviously, uh, you know, Wozniak gets some of the credit, but Steve Jobs justifiably gets the lion's share of the credit. He came back after he left Apple, and that started, I guess it started with iPods and, you know, even more beautiful computing machines. And, you know, eventually the iPhone, and which revolutionized the world just as much as computers, personal computers themselves did. Where do you think that work ethic and vibe came from? From Jobs himself or from some unknown person there? From Jobs himself and the people he hired and, you know, the people he he related to, like Johnny Ive, you know, that, that really, uh, you know, the, there's the story of uh, Jobs' uh, uh, I don't know if this is a real anecdote or, or he just always said, like, a, a good cabinet has like uh, the 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 back of the drawer that you never see has to be the finest wood, you know, that kind of thing. That he he believed in uh, quality throughout, you know, the the product. So um, I think it, it was all driven by Jobs's ideals, and um, and I guess also kind of some of the things that I found really painful and difficult come from Jobs's negative traits his personality that uh you know it's uh to have the greatest products you have to like you know uh 
crack the whip on everybody and you know everybody has to work i, I was going to say one thing with severance there's this sense of like the innies and the outies right you know and they only have that block of time the eight hours or whatever it is when they're on their shift where they're innies and then as soon as they leave they're completely separated from their works to the point where they don't recognize either they have no no knowledge of of the uh, their inside or their outside from from whatever perspective they have at apple you were always an innie um at least in in the group i was in uh i we were always on and you know you'd go home and the i i the the most shocking thing when i started is i uh was hired to uh, run a team of offshore developers in India. And uh, my the, we had one team lead uh, who was working there. And she said, well, you'll be on the call tonight, right? And I said, uh, oh, there's a call tonight? What time? And she said, well, it's got, it has to be pretty late because they're... So it turns out it was like 10, 8, 10 p.m., right? Uh, and uh, I... So I jumped on the call and, you know, it went on for like two hours, to, you know, until midnight. And the next day she said, uh, so you're going to be on the call tonight, right? I said, the call tonight? And it turns out there were four meetings a week starting at 10, at 10 p.m. And sometimes they'd go till one in the morning, you know, uh, and and then I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a morning person typically. I like to get an early start and I like to be like take off at four or five and be done with it and and go for a bike ride or do whatever have my my personal life but that wasn't the way it worked there you know so you were always on that's that's fascinating i mean so you know it's also fascinating you know i was just thinking about something like google glass and you know apple and now facebook have been pushing you know pretty much since the beginning uh, in terms of devices that human beings can interact with and it can dramatically improve, change and improve their lives. So in that sense, you know, the, the Lumen severance approach and the philosophy behind it is consistent with all of those companies. I mean, I, I wonder what somebody would say who either worked or is still working at Facebook now, Meta, uh, and the whole notion of the virtual reality of Meta, what that's all about, that's in a way approaching what Lumen is doing for, in another uh, sense as well. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, I just thought of one one thing, I, I very positive thing I should say about Apple, because there's other than my... Um, the you know, financial rewards of having worked there. It also uh, exposed me to what I'm doing now, which is accessibility. I'm an accessibility engineer, and Apple had a really like uh, uh, a real emphasis on inclusion and making their products available to everyone. And so their accessibility department in the UK was really strong, and it got me really inspired to help people who you know, had difficulties with, you know, using their computers for whatever reason. Uh, and so that's now my career, you know, and it's just because I discovered it at Apple. But I also discovered that I really didn't want to pursue it there at Apple. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather yeah. do it somewhere else. Well, no, I mean, that's understandable uh, completely, you, you know, for the reasons you are saying. But just in general, there's also a world of difference. I, I, I assume the company you're working for is not some kind of international behemoth like Apple is. The, the, and there's always a difference in terms of the scale and the size. One of the things come to think of it that Severance didn't explore at all, I, unless I missed it, it, Lumen seems to be an American company. There, there haven't been any international uh, permutations of that in the, uh, at least in the first season, right? I haven't seen any. Yeah. No, but I, I'm thinking that, um, I don't know, they seem, they seem fairly ambitious. So that it's like they, they want to change the way yeah, the severance concept seems like it's uh, it's hard to know how far they want to go with that and what their real aims are. So it might be uh, something that goes beyond uh, just one country. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, 
And obviously we're giving things away, but I assume uh, anyone who's watching or listening would have seen it already. Holly, who's finding out that Holly's Audi is such a prominent person in Lumen, that's unbelievable as well. I mean, it, it, you know, there are all kinds of implications of that. One, that Lumen really thinks it's good for people, you know, or, or else why would she have put herself in that position? Uh, Holly's Audi, whatever her name is. And um, actually, her name is probably Holly, right? I can't, Helly, is, is that right? I can't even yeah, remember. Yeah. Yeah, they have the same names inside and out, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, the same first names, but not last names, uh, because they're just an initial. An initial. That's right. She was uh, Helly Egan, right? That's right. In, on the outside, and she was Helly R, I think. That, yes, Helly R. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we first got an inkling of that uh, after she, you know, tried to hang herself. And the reason that she did was because her Audi betrayed her. She wanted to leave the company and her Audi said no. And of course, her Audi saying no, now we understand why they wouldn't let her leave the company. Because if somebody so high up in the Egan organization would be giving up on uh, that process of severance that would undermine the whole process. By the way, as long as I have you here, again, I may have missed this. Um, what's your impression about whether or not it is possible to surgically remove the device in the brain uh, that allows the severance? Because that guy did die, but it was not clear to me that he died because it was the device that did it, or some kind of lumen agents that got to him. So did you have any? There, there was something uh, that um, the, 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 the woman who killed uh, Grainer uh, right. said, yes. she said something like um, PD didn't do the reintegration properly. There was something he failed to do properly that caused okay. him to have this this issue so there there is some way that you can do it successfully but also if you remember the uh, implantation uh, procedure that they showed at the early on really early with heli yeah, right it, it went way deep into the brain yeah 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 and so it, yep. it's hard to imagine taking the taking it out easily um that, but maybe there's a way to i don't know you know, hack it or something to deactivate it if you follow some procedure properly. Yeah, well, I, I think it's yeah. fanciful, but <laughs> well, it's pretty it's fun. Not, it's not that crazy when you think about Neuralink, you know, Elon Musk's company that's, you know, doing the implant for, uh, you know, in, actually into the brain electrodes and all that. I was going to bring Elon Musk up because, you know, the, in a way, I, I've never worked, or I'm, and I don't know anyone who ever worked for any of Elon Musk's companies, but I get the feeling that whatever it's like to work at Apple now or Google or Facebook, it must be a completely different trip of a job to be working for any of Elon Musk's companies. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, I, I don't know if, you've, if I've ever mentioned to you that I met Elon Musk a long no, time, no. like 20, 20 years ago. Um, and I actually did a small job for him, uh, a website before I was actually even a very good web developer and knew what I was doing. Uh, he, I was in something called the Mars Society mm -hmm. and he, uh, I, I became, I volunteered to do a, uh, uh, to, to coordinate a fundraiser, a really big fundraiser featuring James Cameron and, uh, $500 a plate. And it was like way beyond like something I should have even been considering doing. But part of it was I had to get, I had to fill up all the plates. So I bought a list and sent it out to all these top CEOs and everything. And one of them was Elon Musk and I, I'd never heard of him. And I, he, I think he was the only one from the list who came to the event. But uh, we, we barely broke even on the cost of the thing. But the next day, he gave the Mars Society a hundred thousand dollars, mm. so uh, it was a huge success because of Elon Musk. And shortly afterwards, uh, uh, he came to one of our chapter meetings, and I got to meet him and, and chatted with him. And he seemed like a really nice guy. Had lunch with him. Uh, he told me he he was planning on doing this uh, 
uh, project to send a, a greenhouse to Mars to inspire um, future Mars missions. And he wanted to use Russian rockets. And he had like this PowerPoint deck that he, and he, he just wanted it turned into HTML. So it turned into a website. So I did that for him. And then I never heard from him again. But he, he didn't seem like a monster to, to, to deal with. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You, I guess you are amazing. You know, uh, here's another thing. You, you met and worked with Elon Musk. You're, you had some involvement with the Mars Society. I, by the way, I think it was the Mars Society. Who remembers? But I went to at least two conferences, maybe like 2015, 2016. One was in Washington. The next one was in Pasadena, California. Because uh, I, Zubrin? Robert Zubrin? yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, he is yeah quite I know. A he is quite a character. It's a really, I mean, for me, it's it's uh, somewhat of an excruciating thing because although I am a fervent advocate of getting out into space, and I have zero tolerance for people who say, "Hey, well, you got to take care of the problems on Earth first. You know, if we keep doing that, we'll eventually burn up and go into the sun. So we have to get our species off this planet." Uh, and I've I've been a, an enthusiastic advocate of that all my life and in all my work. But one of the problems with Zubin is he uh, was, and for all I know, still is a pretty enthusiastic supporter of Trump, uh, as is Elon Musk to some extent. And not to get yeah. too far off, you know, on this, but I'll mention it because I think it's important, you know, the world we live in. And you and I have been talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine on on Twitter. Uh, but I, I and as you also know, I'm also a fervent advocate of free expression, but there are limits to that. And I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, Musk, shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, made the Starlink system, his Starlink system available to Ukrainians, and they used yeah. it. Someone asked him, are you going to lock the Russians out because they had already been using it? And Musk's response was, well, you know, that's what you uh, get for, for, and I'm not going to apologize about being an absolutist regarding freedom of expression, M meaning he thinks it, he thinks the appropriate thing is to uh, allow Putin to say whatever he wants, even though it might be vile lies about killing people. So, I mean, it, it, it's something of a mess, but I mean, this is always the problem. People that we might admire, you know, for some things don't necessarily agree with us with everything else that we, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I cringe when I see a lot of stuff that Elon Musk tweets, um, uh, and, and some of the stuff Zubrin tweets have, sometimes I get into these raging arguments with Zubrin on Twitter, uh, because it, uh, the same thing you're talking about, um, just, he, he tends to be a bit of a reactionary sometimes it's, but he's, he's got just a brilliant mind and I've read several of his books and, you know, he obviously has a, a lot of tremendous ideas and so does Musk, obviously. Yeah. And look, as far as I'm concerned, um, apropos of Paramount plus, you know, and Star Trek, uh, you know, one of the things that really bothers me, the older that I get, is uh, we've barely gone beyond where we were as a species when the original series Star Trek first came on the air in the mid-1960s. And here we are a good 60 years later. And yet we, we've gotten a little further out there. And it, it may be that we need people like Musk and Zubrin to get us out there. So, yeah. But well, Musk has said something like... Um these things don't happen on their own. Uh, somebody has to make them happen, you know? So the, what made the, the moon missions happen was the, the race the, with, uh, with Russia and the cold war, you know, and without that, it, it, nobody was making it happen. So he decided that he was going to be the one to make it happen. So it, it's really interesting to me because uh, I think a lot about this uh, from foundation, I think a lot about this, the great man theory of history, right? And there, um, if you remember in uh, The General with Bel Riose and uh, trying to 
take over the foundation, which was this insignificant little this foe to him. Uh, it, he he thought you know he would just do it by pure will, and the the what he was resisted by was the Selden plan, which was basically that uh, effectively determinism, right? Uh, that the the end result was the foundation was going to win no matter what he did and it was like the the sweep of these social developments and patterns you know that and yeah i did an episode on this uh the the dead it, hand versus the living will something yeah like that. i think it was a great uh, episode and and i i talked about musk in it because to me i am I'm, I'm not a big fan of the 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 uh the, the um, this idea that uh, great men are it's always men too you know that are, yeah. are uh, driving history uh, I like the classic example is Hitler you know and and uh, if uh, you had a time machine and you go back and and kill Hitler as a baby right uh, could you stop the Holocaust right and I'm not so sure you could because I think without Hitler there'd be some it, it the 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 spirit of german nationalism was there and he was just the face of it you know and without him some somebody else would have stepped up into that role and you know the it, the uh, the people of germany were primed to follow and you know that can happen anywhere and so it's uh but then the counter of that is somebody like musk who's saying if somebody doesn't think about a way to get to mars it's not going to happen Right. And maybe if Musk wasn't around, maybe it wouldn't happen and maybe it still might not happen. But uh, he's he's trying he, he strikes me as a Belriose type character like that, you know, because he's saying uh, I have the living will that's going to get us to Mars to get make us multiplanetary. And without me, it wouldn't happen. But it is going to happen because I say it's going to happen. So maybe he is a great man of history. Yeah, well, all of that is fascinating stuff. You know, the whole, the whole, again, time travel, science fictional scenario of going back in time and killing Hitler as a baby, that's one of the most ethically fascinating questions. Uh, first of all, isn't there something else you could do when he was a baby, like maybe move his family to some other part of the world or something? I mean, to kill a baby who certainly isn't doing anything wrong or bad at that point, simply because you know that that baby's going to grow into Hitler. Uh, that's, that would be a very tough thing to do. I mean, I imagine, you know, some people could, could do it. But I actually think, uh, you know, I've given a lot of thought to this too, that it's really, it's great fiction. And, and that's why Asimov is such a brilliant writer, because he, he captured that brilliantly. And as I think I mentioned to you previously, the defeat of the general is certainly one of the high points, along with the mule, of the whole Foundation trilogy and even the series. I mean, I remember when I was reading as a kid, I mean, most people agree the first book is good, but it really gets into high gear in the second volume in the trilogy and whatever number of stories that was in their original publication. And the reason why is precisely because as you're saying is a brilliant exposition of that either or issue. Is it the person, almost always the man or the uh, movements in history? And Asimov comes down incredibly brilliantly on history as the explanation. I think, however, that's actually a combination of both, even though that might not be the best you know, kind of fiction. If you think about us having this conversation here, there are, there are both those elements led to this conversation. Um, meaning, I've always loved foundation, you've loved foundation. Because I love foundation, sooner or later, and this, this is like the historical part of it, I, I would have... The, the, my history would have gotten me to find out about this Selden crisis, which in fact I did because I was especially looking for foundation talk and thinking because of the new series, the new series coming about that's history too. But also the fact that you and I are now having this conversation is the fact that once we got to know each other on Twitter, 
we enjoyed and still enjoy sending tweets to each other, you know, retweeting each other, commenting on it, introducing us to other things. Those are idiosyncrasies of you and I as people. In other words, I might be a person who doesn't enjoy doing that. I mean, there, there are people, I know people who just use Twitter in, in like, they have on like blinders and they almost can't see anything else. They just see what they are wanting to see and anything else is irrelevant, a distraction. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so, I mean, I, yeah, but obviously that's, you and I knowing each other hasn't changed anything much in the world. But if you think about it, you know, the various things that have happened, you know, big and small in the world, it, it always seems to be a uh, combination of things. I mean, for example, about the getting to the moon in the first place, if John F. Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, uh, we wouldn't have been, we might have eventually gotten to the moon, but we wouldn't have had that impetus that got us there by the end yeah, of the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, listen, this was a great discussion. And uh, let's be on the lookout for another series that we both uh, enjoy. We can certainly come I'm back sure and do others. this. Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, one thing I wanted to say that I fought, forgot to add on Severance. Uh, one another reason it resonates with me is I'm a huge Charlie Kaufman fan. Uh, do, you, uh, do you know Charlie yes. Kaufman stuff? Yes. He, uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of similarities in Severance to several of his movies. Yes. Uh, with like the being John Malkovich stuff and right. the, uh, the identity uh, side of that and the uh, the, uh, the dream like spotlight uh, spotlight of the seamless uh, of the seamless mind the of it. I right I yeah, never yeah. Remember. it uh, seamless yeah, is the, in there yeah, but, yeah, yeah. of the seamless mind I think yeah uh, but that that you know removing memories bit is, that's is right that and the, yeah so many. Uh, is that I think that's another reason I just love Severance because it pulled me in. Yeah, no, I, I, I and my whole family love Charlie Kaufman stuff. Um, and who did Memento? Is that the guy who also did Tenet? Uh, uh, I could, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, uh, but he also, in a grander way, he also deals with that to some extent. Whatever his name Christopher is, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah All right. Memento is awesome. Yeah, yeah remember. I haven't seen Tenet yet. I have to see Tenet. Oh, well, t I, I highly recommend it. It's a difficult movie. And um, I, I kind of I kind of envy you because your job makes you it necessary for you to see everything. Yeah. You know, and I get <laughs> I, I have FOMO because I miss so much. <laughs> Jeremy, my son, yeah. didn't let me miss Severance. He's the one who yeah. discovered it. He kept telling me about it, wouldn't shut up about it. And I finally, he finally he said, "Okay, I'm going to watch it again with you." All right, so we did. Well, I often say that teaching, being a professor, beats working for a living, and and this is you know part of the reason. Um, and as a matter of fact, the truth matters not right now, but over the years, many many times, I've taught classes in popular culture, I've taught classes in television and science fiction, and this is exactly you know, not as a, as a student knowledgeable as our discussion, but this is exactly what I talk to the students about. And, um, you know, it, it also justifies uh, time and money, you know, spent, you know, on these things, because, you know, you can't see a movie, certainly you can't go to, out to a movie for nothing. And even now, you know, watching things, and you probably heard, uh, I was just interviewed on another podcast, um, CNN Plus has closed down after being in existence less than a month. And Netflix is basically contemplating drastically changing a whole bunch of their policies, ranging from doing away with binging, because they want people to stay on Netflix longer. They don't want people to binge a series and then swap Netflix for Amazon Prime. Uh, they're going to do away definitely with sharing of passwords among family members. Um, so there's an economic side to all this, and, uh, th there's no doubt that, you know, being a professor, so I can always say, Hey, it's part of my job. It, it makes, uh, makes the economic, uh, aspect much more palatable. Anyway, a, a real pleasure uh, talking to you, Joel. You live out in California. I live in New York. COVID though does seem to be getting better. Let's hope sooner or later 
we can have a nice cup of tea or coffee either in California or New York. Yeah, absolutely. But before then, we'll no doubt do so. Yeah, great. Before right, then, man, thank you very much for inviting me. This is my pleasure. A blast. Take care. The Light on Light Through podcast. And I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joel McKinnon. I'll be back here soon with another episode of Light on Light Through. In fact, very soon with a review of the new episode of Slow Horses. And then I'll have a review of the next two episodes of Outer Range, that strange Western science fiction supernatural series. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and do whatever you can to help those brave people of Ukraine continue to fight off and beat those depraved Russian invaders. The Light on Light Through podcast. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left, again, into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson spilled code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. Thank you.